In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, love. Thank you. There is one radio station... There can be only one. There can be only one. There can be only one. ...that stands out from the crowd. I want that one. All right. What is this thing? It's River Radio. There can be only one. One that's made entirely out of syrup. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to River Radio. It's the Politically Correct Show. With myself, Wisdom DeCosta, and joining us on the show today with James Aldridge, LDR, and Dr. Kapil Marasinga. We'll be finding out whether cryptocurrencies are a pending environmental oh, come on, get teeth in. Are they a pending environmental disaster or can they actually be carbon neutral? Plus, of course, the usual, you know, how can you overcome scams, price volatility, and government regulation? We'll also have some great stories from around Berkshire with Royal Berkshire Hospital opening on a new site, 43 and homes in a little. About to be refused, and the viral story of the week. A story of a very cheeky council painting yellow lines underneath the vehicles. Who would have thought? Would you believe it? Anyway, we're going to start the show this week with going back to cryptocurrency. So, in the first two episodes, we've looked at what they are, how to get involved. In the second episode, we also looked at some of the positives and real potential potential for cryptocurrency, how it differs from any other currency that exists and why it is probably a very good thing. In this episode, we're going to be looking at some of the problems. So, back to Cap. Water. Water. Across. Welcome back to the show, Capel. Dr. Amarasinger, I should say. <laughs> That's all right. You can call me Cap. Uh, Capel, Cap, it's all right. Uh, Capel, it's great to see you. Today, we're going to be talking about the problems associated with cryptocurrency. So in the first two episodes of this series, we talked about really how people can get involved at a basic level with cryptocurrencies, the types of cryptocurrencies available. And then the second one, we had Joe Fisher and yourself, and we were talking about some of the opportunities with cryptocurrency. And today we're going to look at specifically some of the problems, some of the nuances, and things for people to think about. I think we should start by going over the positives. What are some of the positives, just in the, if you could list it for our listeners, for cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies offer tremendous opportunity for wealth redistribution for people who are savvy enough to understand how they work and how to trade and invest in them. That's the first thing I'm going to say. The second thing I'm going to say from a very pure and technical level, cryptocurrencies and the technology underpinning them, which is blockchain, offers greater room for transparency, accountability, and verifiability for financial transactions, uh, not just basic ones like currency trading, but more complex ones such as financial instruments and financial contracts. It provides a way to essentially speed up settlement of these complex contracts at the same time as removing middlemen that may have essentially been involved in them, thereby reducing the cost of these sorts of processes and improving the efficiency, creating savings. One of the other aspects is if we see a lot of um, two-factor authentication, which is people being really concerned about networks being hacked. Bitcoin or blockchain technology, I understand in terms of its privacy aspect, could give us a lot of security and help us to transact more efficiently and quickly rather than continually having to go to two, three, four multiple-factor authentication to prove your identity. 
Exactly. And certainly in terms of offering privacy, there are a number of privacy-specific cryptocurrencies. Monero and Particle are good examples whereby you can be guaranteed that X amount of value is flowing from one person to another without necessarily knowing who those people are or what exact path occurred for that value to be transacted in. So it offers a lot in terms of data protection, privacy, reducing the risk of exposure to financial fraud. Although, as we'll discuss later, there are aspects in which you may potentially be increased in terms of your risk exposure as well. I mean, other areas that I feel it could benefit are auditing and supply chain monitoring. I believe there's applications that exist with real estate. Certainly in the last episode with Joe Fisher, we discussed the applications in regards to non-fungible tokens, i.e. protecting the intellectual property of artists and property owners and ensuring that their rights are better, fairer, and more transparently represented, and also allowing for uh, a truly verifiable and auditable way of transmitting such information as well, as well as the ownership of such information. This is actually an interesting concept, which doesn't quite 100% sit with our understanding of currencies today, but it carries lots of extra points. For example, if I was to invest in pound sterling or dollar, I can't be sure that I'm actually improving the lots in terms of somebody being able to vote and vote securely, or even in terms of um, improving the transaction flows for someone else or the privacy of someone else. So it's interesting that these currencies have long tails, so to speak. They offer added benefits. So it's, it's almost like every currency you invest in isn't a country with its own ideology, but rather it, it is a concept of improving the world with its own set of merits. Exactly. Cryptocurrencies do encourage the diversification of ideologies, and I believe they will pave the way for new governance models to emerge. Certainly, you'll see this if you study various cryptocurrency projects. Good ones to look at actually are Dash and Decred, as well as Particle. But Dash and Decred employ robust governance systems to dictate in a very almost autonomous but very democratic manner how their their currencies are governed and how the financial ecosystems within their currencies and certainly within their communities are governed. They allow for new, more transparent ways of putting forward proposals to improve their respective communities. So I do believe that cryptocurrencies in some ways pave the road towards what I would consider a form of direct democracy, which is its own topic. And that sort of comes to the point that these things are sometimes difficult to comprehend or understand. So we need some level of regulation and ability to open this up to ordinary people so that big organizations, hedge funds, as I think we were talking about earlier, don't have the ability to make the rich richer again, but we can completely ensure that this is a democratic process, democracy in the sense that ordinary people can participate in the increasing value. So how do we do that? What sort of regulation do we need? Because I understand that that is a key weakness. There is a lack of regulation across the world in individual countries. There's variance in regulation and there is a lack of regulation in many parts of the world in relation to cryptocurrencies. People in general are just barely beginning to understand them unless you've been involved from a very long time. And a long time in my head would be going back as far as 2013 or 2010 when this all began. There aren't that many people who deeply understand 
cryptocurrencies on every level, partly why I'm here today to help bridge that gap. And they are abstract concepts that are difficult for most politicians, lawyers, economists. You know, there are a lot of very intelligent people in the world that struggle to grasp this concept. Yeah. So if I was to ask you, Kat, because I know that you're a great believer that everybody has a vote, everybody has a right, every individual should count, and the value of your pocketbook, your bank account, isn't what defines your value. So Mm. what sort of regulations do you think we need to protect the ordinary person? When I say protect the ordinary person, to help them get involved, but also to prevent big players like the hedge funds coming in and manipulating the situation, or even other fraudsters. What regulation do you think we need? It's a very difficult area to address. What what I would say, in answer to your question, I, I think we actually need a permissive regulatory culture rather than a restrictive one. I do think we need to understand and acknowledge that cryptocurrency is a very abstract area for most people. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to comprehend. It's difficult to interpret. There are many aspects to cryptocurrency that go beyond trading and investing. And these aspects are tied into finance, economy, psychology, politics, especially geopolitics, the environment, and much, much more. The, the, the implications of cryptocurrencies are far-reaching, but I believe a permissive regulatory environment will encourage both adoption and research and growth in a safe manner. Now, how do you go about doing that in a safe manner? You ultimately need to protect the consumers uh, and the retail traders, buyers and investors from fraud first and foremost, because within this space, there is a lot of fraud. There are a lot of bad actors. There are actually quite a few honest actors. And actually now there are more honest actors than I believe there were a few years ago. And I certainly believe the honest actors are a lot more prominent and have helped develop and gained a foothold within the infrastructure. So I think in some ways, Trading and investing in cryptocurrencies is less complicated than it was a few years ago, simply because the safe infrastructure is there. It's been better developed and the regulatory framework is starting to emerge as reflected within decisions by various regulatory bodies internationally. Okay. So when you say bad actors, are you talking about people offering new cryptocurrencies who actually aren't what they seem to be. How can we weed them out? Is the risk actually fairly low to the ordinary investor because they're not so involved in cryptocurrencies? I would say the first thing is the more emotionally you get involved with cryptocurrencies, the more at risk of being a victim of fraud that you are. Anyone who gets emotional about this area, they tend to be the ones who get suckered into a lot of projects that are either outright scams or built on bad faith principles or may have good intentions, but are just badly run, but well marketed. And to be clear, it sounds as if if you're investing in projects that are already on one of the exchanges, then they're likely to be fairly secure. So it sounds like you're talking about projects which haven't quite got credibility to get onto the Coinbase or other sort of exchanges. Is that that about right? Sure. There are a lot of unregulated exchanges operating globally, and I wouldn't trust them. 
Right. There are a couple of big exchanges that I think merit consideration. You mentioned Coinbase is one of them. They're based in the United States. And they, at the United States, as a general rule, any cryptocurrency exchange that is headquartered in the United States, particularly in New York, will be subject to extremely stringent financial regulations and oversight. So what you're saying is that if it's a US-based exchange, then they're likely to be more secure and offer you currencies which are less likely to be scams. Yes, they will be under a greater level of regulatory scrutiny. So as a general rule of thumb, I don't want to make this a US-centric thing because there are cryptocurrency exchanges outside the US that have operated for a number of years and have accrued positive reputation over time. Kraken is one of them. I was really trying to avoid mentioning Binance. It's one of the biggest and most popular exchanges, but it's had some regulatory issues recently. So I'm kind of hesitant to kind of go all in with them, but they're certainly one of the more well-known ones. What does the UK need to do? Has it got sufficient regulation in place to be able to say that any uh, exchange operating from the UK is safe and secure? And indeed, are there any exchanges operating from the UK? I believe eToro advertises itself prolifically within the UK and they offer trading of cryptocurrencies. You can even get them now through PayPal. You can buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. If you go back to the very first episode I did with you, Wisdom, I just basically said, if you're going to buy any two cryptocurrencies right now, it should be Bitcoin and Ethereum. And the simple reason for that is this isn't financial advice, but if, if you don't really know what you're doing then of the safest options, these two tend to be the safest because they are the most liquid cryptocurrencies. And by liquid, I mean they have the highest daily trading volumes. And by the way, I'm now going to touch on another area in which cryptocurrency is, is very scammy in the way that it's promoted. If you go to a number of websites that discuss cryptocurrencies or a number of forums, a lot of the time they talk about market cap ranking. And what market cap is is it's it's a synthetic it's a synthetic derivative so it's basically the circulating supply multiplied by the price of an individual coin now okay. so it's it, almost like saying well here's when you look at the market cap for shares or for a specific company ICI whomever there are other chemical companies around by the way the number of shares multiplied by the price of that share gives you the market capitalization. This is the worst possible metric to use in cryptocurrency to evaluate any of them. Because Why is it, that? It leaves you open to scams. Let me explain this. If you go to any site that ranks coins by market cap, I mean, I use CoinPaprika, but you can use CoinMarketCap.com. If you go to that website right now, if you went to CoinPaprika.com, you could look at the 24-hour volume this is the most important metric for, to me for measuring liquidity of a cryptocurrency. The 24-hour volume today on Bitcoin is 63 billion US dollars. For Ethereum, it's 43, million, 43 billion US dollars. And then Tether, USDT, which is a, a stable coin, the daily volume for that is 125 billion US dollars. Uh, the next non-stable coin cryptocurrency after that, its daily volume is 5 billion, 4 billion. 14 million for something called Hex. Now, Hex, that sits at number six on market cap on ranking on coinpaprika.com. It has a spot price of 0.16 cents and its total circulating supply is, let me just bring it up, 287 billion coins. 
I can't wow. read that. It's okay. it's like three, six, nine, twelve digit supply, right? Yeah. But it but the daily volume on hex is something like fourteen million dollars. So even though it occupies a market cap ranking of six on Coin Paprika, actually, if you were to rate these by daily trading volume, hex would barely scrape the top one thousand. That's pretty useful advice. Don't just look at the market cap, but also look at the trading volumes. I mean, another example here, Shiba Inu, which was in the news recently, that's got a spot price of a fraction of a cent. And it's rank 14 in coin market cap terms. And that's because it's got what circulating supply of 3, 6, 9, 12, 15 digits. So what, 489 billion coins? I don't know what 15 digit is. It's insane. But its daily volume is 36 million. The daily volume of Ethereum is 43 billion. Yeah. And the daily volume of Bitcoin is 63 billion. We're talking factors of 100 in terms of daily trading volume. The liquidity of Ethereum and Bitcoin is so much higher. So even if you held a million Shiba Inu, there, there's no way you can just sell that without massively dropping the price. It's the idea that if I held a million dollars worth of Shiba Inu, well, if I tried to sell it all at once, I'm not likely going to get a million dollars back. I'm less likely that I'm going to get a million dollars of Shiba Inu, of US dollars back than if I were to sell a million dollars worth of Ethereum right now, simply because the daily trading volume of Ethereum is a hundred times more. So as you're selling cryptocurrencies, they're valued on the free market. Right now, the price of Ethereum might be $3,930. But if I were to execute a sell order for say $100,000, the next order, it might push the price down slowly. And by that, what I mean is I've sold $100,000. So that means the number of people willing to pay that exact price $3,930, well, that's just gone down by $100,000. There may not be anyone left who, who's willing to buy it at that much. You've covered very usefully there the concept of wide entrance, narrow exit. It's easy to buy, but if you choose a currency that's difficult to sell, actually, you could get screwed. Before we move on from this issue of regulation, we've said that the US has great regulation. We've looked at a couple of exchanges based in the US. We talked about the UK. There's one eToro, which is an exchange based in the UK. And you're saying that in the UK, we need to have some more permissive regulation. Do you think the UK regulation is good, is as good as the US in terms of protecting investors? <sighs> Gosh, I know that the UK has a fairly well-defined tax position, but no, they're not financially protected assets in any sense. And to a certain extent, if you've got accounts with Coinbase and certain other entities, your fiat values, to my knowledge, are insured. I need to go double check this, to be honest. But I know to a certain extent, because of the relationships they have, they have insurers that will insure your holdings to a certain extent. Okay. But you, know, okay. you can't guarantee that. There's no guarantees in this space at the moment. Any specific issues that you'd say to the UK government you need to do A, B, and C to offer some level of assurance and security to investors. I think a really sensible start for the UK and global regulators would be to look at the manner in which cryptocurrencies are advertised and promoted. And some of the existing legislation already covers that within the UK from the Advertising Standards Authority. And there is a bit of a legal framework, but it goes back to what I've just said about 
this idea of liquidity in relation to daily volume. My personal view is that cryptocurrencies should not be ranked by market cap. This is an extremely misleading metric. The only truly useful metric in cryptocurrency to me, if I had no other, would be the daily trading volume, because that gives me an idea of how liquid the asset is. If I was a UK regulator, I would say to any website promoting cryptocurrencies in the UK, you should be ranking your cryptocurrencies by daily trading volume first, and then secondly, by the ratio of daily volume against the circulating supply. Because if you divide the daily volume by the circulating supply, a currency with a very high daily trading volume and a low circulating supply, such as Bitcoin, that is an extremely liquid asset. And the same applies to Ethereum, the same applies to Tether. All of these big cryptocurrency exchanges in the US that are regulated, the general tendency is they're only really okay listing liquid assets because the liquid assets provide safety in terms of entry and exit, much less likely that any single individual or small group of individuals will be able to single-handedly manipulate that given cryptocurrency market if it's extremely liquid. Illiquid coins are extremely easy for a handful of players to manipulate the price of. This is where you get the pump and dump schemes. Again, this goes back to why I was hesitant to mention Binance, because even though it's an extremely well-known exchange, it lists thousands, it has so many different projects on it. And it's not alone. There are lots of exchanges that list hundreds or thousands of coins but most of these coins are illiquid and they're subject to manipulated pump and dumps by small players who know how to manipulate people. We're going to take a quick break now. And we've got Alicia Keys with Empire State of Mind. But stay tuned because after the break, we'll be coming back and Cap will be talking about how not to be scammed. Is climate change actually going to destroy cryptocurrency? And you can get in touch with Cap. Stay tuned. As a place of movie scenes Noise is always loud There are sirens all around And the streets are me. If I can make it here I can make it anywhere That's what they say
There we go, Alicia Keys with New York, one of my favourite songs. And you know what? It actually replaces New York, New York by good old Frank Sinatra. Well, welcome back to River Radio. And you listen to us on Apple, Google, the web, Alexa or DAB or even at river.radio. So we were listening to Dr. Kaplan America Singer talking about some of the problems, the lack of legislation, for example, with um, cryptocurrency. Now we're going to be looking at actually... Is cryptocurrency the greatest risk to climate change there is? What do you do about price volatility? And also, how can you get in touch with, with Dr. Cap, as he's, as he's called? What sort of protection is there in relation to scams? What else needs to be put in place? Are scams really only targeted at the people who, as I said, are emotionally involved and so are looking for quick gains? Are those the people most at risk? It's not necessarily people who are emotionally involved and looking for quick gains. It's people who make emotional value judgments in general. A few things for readers to go look up on their own time, go Google the OneCoin scam, go Google ICO scams, go Google pump and dump scams, go Google exit scams, go Google rug pull. These are the types of scams you need to be on the lookout for. And if you are aware of what these scams are and how they work, and go Google Ponzi's. If, if you understand these concepts, you'll be in a good position to spot a scam. But if you study cult psychology as well, yeah, that's probably going to be a useful thing to learn about because a lot of cryptocurrencies, it goes back to what you said at the beginning. They're all communities at the end of the day, but some of these communities are run like very, very bad faith cults. And you need to be acute to that phenomena. So who got scams pitched at? Are they going to be pitched at people who use an exchange or are they coins or currencies which are not on an exchange? The first thing is coins that aren't on exchanges. You might see these projects being advertised. Oh, yes, please give us, donate some Bitcoin or some Monero or Ethereum. Donate uh, an actual valuable cryptocurrency to our project that's yet to release but we are signed up to launch on this exchange and this exchange, or we're going to deliver this, 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 then people send their Bitcoin, Ethereum, or whatever cryptocurrency to the addresses that those organizers specify, nothing gets released. That's a basic one. In our very first show, we said a good way of avoiding scams is to join the Particle Project or the Discord server and to chat to some of the experts like yourself and Joe and ask them, what do you think of this opportunity? Yeah, I invite you. I happen to be an advisor on the Particle Project, which is, you know, if you want to go to the website, it's P-A-R-T-I-C-L.io. Anyone is free to go to these chat rooms and ask us questions about projects. Although please take it to the off topic or the altcoin section, but feel free to ask questions and to learn. 
because there are people here who've performed extremely successfully and honestly. And, and that combination, certainly in the earlier days, was not that common. And even now, I'd argue finding truly honest sources of information. I mean, two sources that I, I personally recommend, Coin Bureau, they're really good. Cracking Crypto, fantastic. Kapil, you've mentioned the Particle Project, and I just want to be upfront with everybody listening. The Particle Project, P-A-R-T-I-C-L, is actually a cryptocurrency, and it is something you're involved with, so you have a holding in it. Yeah. Nevertheless, we're just telling you out front that Kapil is involved in that. But from my perspective, having known Kapil for a number of years, I would say these are good people to talk to before you sort of jump into any investment, especially an investment in a coin, which is not on any of these regulated exchanges. I'm not going to be here to tell you to buy XYZ or sell XYZ. I'm just going to tell you if I think it's a viable project or if it's a scam. And there are thousands of these projects. And it doesn't take me that long to quickly look and go, is this interesting to me or not? So if you've got something you might be interested in, feel free to ping it to me or to you know, someone within the community. Take your time to learn about these individual projects. Take your time to study the concepts I've been talking about at length. These are important. Take your time to understand the types of scams that people incorporate because they're rife within crypto. And once you understand them, it's so much easier to get through stuff. We're going to change the subject now, Cap. We're going to go back to the start, really. We talked about the positives. Now, mining, there are a couple of concepts in terms of getting involved. And mining is obviously an important aspect of validating the transaction. So it's not just people trying to get rich quick, but also an important part of the whole ecosystem in maintaining the, the validity and the probity of cryptocurrency. How much does it cost to start mining? For example, can we use our own computer? Is it better to buy a rig? How much does a rig cost? The short answer is no, I don't recommend that casual people start mining Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency because it confers a significant amount of risk, a significant amount of cost, and it requires a significant amount of education to really learn and understand what you're doing. If you're going to mine cryptocurrencies, there are several ways to do it. And when we talk about mining, if I'm going to be slightly technical, I'm just going to say mining is in relation to cryptocurrencies that use an algorithm called proof of work. There's a probability that these computers will basically solve a certain set of mathematical equations that will allow the network to progress to the next block, and then they'll get rewarded a bit of Bitcoin as a reward for participating in validating. That's proof of work. So we talked about proof of work and you talked about a number of people competing to validate a block of transaction. And the validation is really important for proving the identity and the and, and the transaction value. So you've got security in, in, in the value of the currency. So with mining, you've got a number of different people competing. They're all processing the same transaction. The first person to finish that isn't is going to get a reward, but the others won't. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, that's right, basically. Why? Why do they do that? That seems like a very long-winded way of proving or, or validating a transaction. And I think this is one of the problems that leads to the, the potentially large carbon footprint mm. of a cryptocurrency. Why do they do that? So it's essentially to ensure security of the network. If let's say, let's give some let's give some parameters. If it takes 10 minutes to mine one Bitcoin block, 
that means there, for every block, there is this 10-minute window where all of these computers are competing against each other to successfully mine that block and get a reward in Bitcoin. Each computer is going to use as much computing power as it can. It's, generate, it's using electricity and generating heat. And that electricity use may be renewable or non-renewable. But if I have a computer that's mining Bitcoin right now, the probability that I'm going to successfully mine a block within a given time frame, so within that 10-minute period for each new block, the probability that I will successfully mine that block is proportional to the amount of raw computing power that I use to mine that block. So if there are a 1,000 computers mining one block, the amount of electricity and computing power required due to the sheer amount of competition to mine that block successfully is going to be much higher than if there were just 10 computers mining for that single block. So why, again, do we have this level of competition with lots and lots of players looking to validate one single block? What's the benefit of that? The irony is that because Bitcoin has speculative value, as the speculative value of Bitcoin goes up, through free market trading, because that value of each Bitcoin is going up, the profitability of mining those blocks go up. So if you happen to be lucky enough and using enough power and a good enough setup to mine that Bitcoin, the cost of electricity that you may consume to mine that Bitcoin for that given block may be a lot less than what you can sell on the free market. So what you find is as as the speculative value of Bitcoin is going up, which is a lot to do with speculative trading and investment, more people start mining Bitcoin. The more people that mine Bitcoin for a given block, the more competitive it becomes and the more the electricity usage shoots up as well. But the flip side to it is if you happen to be the person lucky enough to successfully mine that block, you're in profit potentially. If, if you kind of look Right now, the annual electrical consumption for mining Bitcoin is comparable to the power consumption of Thailand. I think two or three years ago, it was a smaller country like Iceland or Finland. Basically, Mm -hmm. the more valuable Bitcoin becomes as a more speculative asset, the more people are mining it. The more people are mining it, the more electricity is used. That electricity can be both renewable or non-renewable, but actually a good chunk of it is non-renewable. Therefore, not only are you just generating a lot of excess heat, you are you know, creating a carbon footprint. It's not environmentally that great. Bitcoin doesn't really environmentally scale unless the miners are all switching to renewables. It's also that idea of the proof of, of work concept of having lots of people effectively duplicating the same transaction, which is not necessarily very helpful for efficiency. Mm-hmm. What other concepts are there? An alternative method called proof of stake. And proof of stake, you're not mining coins, you're minting them. It seems like a meaningless distinction, but in order to explain what proof of stake is, you'll then understand why it uses a lot less electricity than Bitcoin mining, why it's fundamentally more efficient. So if minting is a more environmentally friendly option, which currencies are actually minting. But let's talk about minting first. So minting applies to proof of of stake. Mining applies to proof of work. In order to explain proof of stake, which uses almost no electricity compared to proof of work. Who does offer minting? So what 
you so proof of stake networks that allow for minting of coins again and you know networks like particle do this dash offers a hybrid version cardano is a proof of stake network ethereum is partially proof of stake and they're planning to transition fully to proof of stake within well within the next year or two so there's a couple you have to just go look up proof of stake cryptocurrencies how can you get involved at minting and what does it cost to buy a rig uh, a computer setup that would effectively just focus on minting and be effective. So if you want to mint proof of stake coins, the barrier to entry is extremely low. You can most ordinary laptops, you can even stake on mobile phones as in mint. You can, you can engage in minting. All you need is the cost of the coins that you choose to buy. So if you happen to find a proof of stake network that you like, and you decide, yeah, I want to mint coins on that proof of stake network then what you need to do is download the node software for that particular network. If you wanted to do it with Particle, you could basically uh, download the Particle software from the website and then acquire some part coins, you know, the Particle's native coins, transfer them to that wallet on the software you've downloaded and set that wallet to do staking, which will then start minting coins, as it were, and the probability that you'll mint new coins and then be given rewards of those coins is proportional to how many you hold. It's very similar in concept to a savings account. The probability that you get chosen is proportional to how many of the coins you hold in relation to how many are in circulation. If you take a given proof of stake cryptocurrency and you hold 10% of that circulating supply, and lock it into a staking mode so it starts validating transactions, then for every block that's generated, there's a 10% chance that you will be given the right to mint that block and thus be rewarded coins. The reward you get is, is it's essentially a flat rate. And this is where it's like a savings account. So as I said, if there's a 2% inflation rate on the annual supply of the coin, if I have 10,000 coins locked in staking on a proof of stake network, then over a year, that 10,000 is most likely going to wind up 10,200 coins because I'll have basically made 2% of all the new coins that are in so. And just to take it one step slightly further, there are things that are called staking pools. So what you can basically do is you can buy some, if you're interested in buy some of that particular proof of stake cryptocurrency and then go, yeah, I would like to put it in this staking pool. And then it kind of, it's almost a distributed pool. So it may be like 10, 20, 30 people who pool all of their tokens into this one particular node. And then the probability of that node getting selected is much higher than if those individuals were just staking on their own, then they'll get a cut from whatever that node creates proportional to what they put in. It doesn't matter how powerful your computer is in proof of stake. All that matters is how many coins you lock in staking. So if you lock 10,000 coins, if, if, if the annual staking rewards on the network are 2%, if you lock 10,000 coins, you'll get 2% of 10,000, which is 200 coins, not okay. 400. I don't know. My math is failing me right now. Plus but, the capital value of the increase. Yeah. So yeah, got it. it will be effectively, on average, you'll get a flat fixed rate of return proportional to how much you lock up. 
Um, and that's why it's like a savings account. It has nothing to do with how powerful your computer is. In contrast with proof of work, you need to have the most powerful computer to have the highest probability of getting rewards. And that's what consumes uh, resource. All right. Let's change the subject now. We're going to move on to talking about the recent unexpected drop in the value of cryptocurrencies, which seems to be across the board, not just Bitcoin, but also um, Ethereum and Solano, all of the other currencies. What's happened here? What, why have these drop prices dropped? So we're talking about drops in the short to mid-ish term, not the long term. If you look at the lifetime trend, prices have gone up exponentially since the beginning. But if we're talking about the most immediate sort of week, maybe stretch into a month, um, there was some uncertainty within the broader financial markets. And whenever there's uncertainty in the broader financial markets, that triggers a sell-off within you know, the S&P or the FTSE or you, know, you name your traditional financial stock exchanges, you'll typically find that cryptocurrency very, very quickly follows. Why is that? Well, the majority of people that hold and trade cryptocurrencies certainly nowadays and certainly from 2016 onwards, they're mostly hedge funds and professional investors and people from the big money world. You know, these are people who hold reserves of cryptocurrency that they actively trade and invest in, but they treat them as extremely high risk assets. And rightfully so, to the point that whenever there's a general market sell-off, they tend to initiate or they tend to sell their reserves of cryptocurrencies almost to escape into fiat because they're not just selling stocks and shares, they're selling everything across the board. And that's to escape into fiat until the market settles down. Now, the thing is, whenever an institutional player or a hedge fund or a professional investor with large holdings sells, because they tend to be trading very large sums, it tends to push the price down. When the price gets pushed down, you know, a lot of the traders on the market, they have what's called stop stop orders and stop loss orders and, and limit orders. Basically, when the price goes to a certain point, a lot of these traders have automated programs in place to immediately trigger sales as, as well to kind of protect their own positions. Okay. So it triggers a cascade of sales and then until an equilibrium is reached. All right. So... It is a risky asset at the moment. If you want to look upon it as an asset, there's another way of looking upon these currencies, which is as a community, if you like, or as an ideological way of improving the state of the world. But it is still open to, as you say, market values and hedge funds who are speculating to an extent. How can people... What? There we go, Dr. Kapoor Singer, uh, talking about hedge funds and, of course, their impact on cryptocurrency and more than that looking at some of the negatives of cryptocurrency which may not be that negative as you think the key issue here is uh, do get involved do get in touch and dr cap will be back again for one more short episode looking at uh, a real sum up and understanding the ideology and how does this thing work how can you get involved and where can you go with this but we're going to take a quick break there order 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 Okay, welcome back to the show. We've got a double take on music there. Brilliant. Welcome back to the show, local democracy reporter, James Aldridge. James, are you there? 
Yeah, yeah, I'm here, and uh, yes, yeah, uh, pleasure to be with you as always. So it seems that like cryptocurrency is a real um, young person's thing. Is that right? Uh, with techies, I, I suppose yes. People who are interested in technology, people who like um, who are interested in investment. Um, I can't say I'm one of those people. Yep. Uh, the the um, I've got from what I know about. Um, uh, cryptocurrency is that it can it has been used by some sort of unsavory um unsavory uh, people politics wise um it's uh it's, it's i think it's quite common in libertarian yep. circles to talk about cryptocurrency but also anarchist circles uh right-wing circles and far-right circles and even um even uh people involved in in terror groups so and hedge funds there. and um, hedge funds <laughs> yeah and hedge funds, I guess. wow what a radical group of people we have there. Yeah, yeah well it's a mix what it, a mix it sounds like a mix well yeah. i don't know they might all be regarded as terrorists quite frankly <laughs> I, i'm only joking you guys out there even yeah. i'm going to be investing in cryptocurrency don't worry about it i'm i hope people don't think i'm an, an anarchist or a terrorist but who knows great to see you back on the show again and here yeah, there's lots there's lots happening in your area yeah definitely i mean one story has gone uh national and even global i mean i think i've seen i've seen like it, the story might have been picked up in vietnamese and um and uh yeah it's gone all over the world basically what, what's happened what, is what, what on earth in, would cause that much consternation across the world <clears throat> well well it's a thing about um yellow lines being painted uh, it ha- this happened in Blackthorn close and early. And what happened was... Um, the so so where's, where's this? Is this some faraway country? No, no, no. It's in early in Reading. It's early the, the early suburb of Reading. Not very far from where I live, actually. Yep. Um, what um, happened was uh, the council contractors wanted to paint yellow lines, um, uh, double yellow lines uh, for the residents there. Um, and... In order to do that, they had to remove uh, some cars. Uh, so they used um, hoisting equipment to lift these cars. Uh, so they painted under the cars. The, the yellow paint went under the cars. And then uh, shortly afterwards, um, the cars got slapped with tickets. So initially, they weren't parked illegally and they weren't going to be <laughs> fined. But then once they all dropped down then and the parking attendants came, then they got fined and uh yeah it's a bit of a sneaky sneaky operation and um people not very um not very happy about it it's caused sort of very sneaky amazing. i have to say that, that's absolutely outrageous but what a great idea if you want to make a bit of quick a few quick quid on the side um, i mean what- the council yeah i mean the council was denied uh that they, they effectively said it was coincidence um but initially what, which bit was coincidence that the blinds were painted that the cars were lifted up or that no, no, somebody no, no, then no, came in and gave them the, a ticket um, the, it was a coincidence the parking attendants came around and uh, had ticketed those cars. Um, and they're doing what they can to uh, resolve the issue. They've said anyone who hasn't already appealed uh, should um, appeal via email to parking services at wokium.gov.uk and they will work with uh, the people affected to cancel those fines. Okay, so a few yellow-faced um, council gurus there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, in, initially, what the contractors were meant to do were they were meant to put cones out, informing people that they were meant to park there, um, but that wasn't actually done. Um, the council admitted uh, that wasn't done by the contractors, and uh, the council has been very apologetic. Uh, Ouch. 
it's yeah. sort of almost global embarrassment a little bit, <laughs> but um, I think they've, they've probably acted in the correct way. Yeah, well, listen, well done working in Borough Council for actually um, recognising the issue. And hopefully you've been very nice to your um, residents and anyone who was caught with yellow tyres underneath their wheels, obviously. So what else is happening in Wokingham and Reading? I understand that actually you're taking up a bit of the Reading area now uh, that Tevye Marks unfortunately has uh, uh, sadly has left us. Yeah, I mean, when I say left us, sorry, well, I wouldn't just clarify. When I say left us, I mean he's gone on to better opportunities as opposed to he's gone on to the newspaper in the sky. You know? Yeah, yeah, you know, he's um, he's uh, doing uh, some uh, civil service magazine. Um, that that's where he's working now. So I um, I've taken upon it myself to do uh, to cover a bit of uh, Reading. Do, local do, do you know what? Do you know what? I think he's actually joined MI6. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I think it's all just some sort of. Like a, yeah, yeah, I, I can really uh, con- confirm that. But um, well, uh, the the, well, the the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, the Royal Barge Hospital. Uh, there's um, the plans have been revealed uh, from the NHS Trust, which could potentially see the hospital being relocated either to Green Park um, in uh, sort of South Reading or possibly even our borough in the Thames Valley Science Park, which is owned by the University of Reading. Okay. Now, I can understand that there's a ton of area in the science park. Is there enough room in Green Park? Because obviously Green Park, you've also got um, Reading, the Reading Football Stadium there, and of course I would mention them, and you've got other um, big outlets, uh, retail outlets. So is there enough room there for a, for a big hospital? Well, I mean, I mean, I, I can only imagine that they, they, they I, I can only imagine the trust wouldn't consider that location if they didn't know they they possibly might want to move there. But I, I still think it's un, unlikely. I mean, I think what it'd be important to have is wherever it goes, there needs to be an accident and an emergency. I think that's really important. And it would be, I think it might be quite beneficial to have an accident and emergency closer to the M4. Um, and uh, both both Green Park and um, and the Thames Valley Science Park uh, would fit that bill. They are closer to the M4, so when you sadly do get crashes on the M4, then um, uh, people can t- be taken to hostel quick, quickly and effectively, okay. and there wouldn't be a need to go okay. all the way into Reading for that. So, um, so I think that would be beneficial. And what sort of timeline are we talking about for this? Are we talking about five years, ten years, or even shorter than that? I think um, it's is is quite long in the future. Um, I believe uh, it's uh, probably probably ten years. Um, it, it, this is this is a lot a long way into the future as far as I'm, uh, as far as far as I can see. Um, so um, services won't be kind of taken away from um, from uh, the Royal Park Hospital just yet. Okay. And will you be writing a story or have you already written a story in one of the local newspapers so people can go and find out more information? Yeah, that's on the Reading Chronicle um, and it's also also, uh, been been covered on the BBC as well. Uh, So an important important story and uh, yeah, it's it's generating a lot of interest as it it should do because um, hospital services are important and uh, it would also be good if the Trust maintained the site um, in Reading itself, Um, but it's up for them to make make that decision. there are plans to redevelop the Royal Barch Hospital site, but um, there is a possibility that, that it could be moving. Okay. Well, interesting. So keep your eye on that story. And if you want to get involved, I presume you just call the um, the Royal Berkshire Hospital Trust to find out more information. And of course, get the Medical Chronicle and read James's story. Yeah, well, well, there, there is one th- thing, actually. There is a... Um, people who are interested in uh, the future of the hospital can kind of 
joined the Building Berkshire Together Network, uh, which is um, focusing on the long-term future of uh, the Royal Berkshire Hospital. Um, and that email is buildingberkshiretogether, so no dots, at royalberkshire.nhs.uk. So buildingberkshiretogether at royalberkshire.nhs.uk. So if you're um, minded one way or another, uh, by the possibility of the hospital relocating, uh, then you can you can send them an email. Um, but um, the one thing I would say is the leader of the of Reddingborough Council, uh, Jason Brock, he said that it's um, he's quite confident that um, there will be a hospital staying in Reading, um, and it, he said it's kind of unlikely that um, it will be relocated to either Green Park or um, Thames Valley Science Park. Really, he's that confident. But, yeah, yeah, he said um, uh, only one of the myriad possibilities involved the hospital's relocation and the cost of such an option makes it unlikely. Uh, so, yeah, All from right. his perspective, it's unlikely that the hospital will be relocating, but we'll see. We'll see. Absolutely. And we might even get Jason Brock on next week. I was actually just finishing off a meeting with Jason a few minutes ago. I should have yeah. asked him, shouldn't I? So what's yeah. next? 43 Homes and Little Plans. What's that about? Well, uh, it's a subject that I've uh, spoken uh, spoken on before. Uh, it's generated a lot of interest. Um, there's a plan to build 43 homes um, and affordable housing and a new Lidl store um, in Meldreff Way in Lower Early, which is right on the outskirts of Lower Early. Um, and it's uh, it's looking likely that the plan will be refused. Uh, around um, November, December last year, uh, basically this is a greenfield site, um, so it was woodland to a degree, but scrub scrubland. Um, and what happened was contractors came around and did some clearing works, which they were entitled to do, but um, neighbours were up in, up in arms uh, because this is a piece of land called Swallows Meadow mm. um, and it's quite well loved uh, by uh, the community in, in Lower Early and people who use Swallows Meadows for, for walks and um, the animals that use it um, as a sort of um, a wildlife corridor as well. Uh, so people were up in arms about that and since then um, there hasn't been a lot of enthusiasm for the Foy Free Homes and the New Little in the area um, <laughs> and also so the Wokenborough Council have um, argued that it should be refused. So um, planning officers during planning meetings, they make recommendations. Here the recommendation is that the council's planning committee refuse the plan. Yep. Uh, this will go to the planning committee of Wokenborough Council at 7pm this Wednesday. Uh, so a big uh, a story that's been generating a lot of uh, interest in Lower Rally. Uh, and it's due to be decided soon. Okay, so what you're saying is that at the moment the planning officers have recommended it for f- for refusal, and it's yeah. going to a public meeting where the uh, councillors can officially decide. Well, I shouldn't call them councillors because they actually have a different role as a member of a planning panel. So certain councillors who are now members of a planning panel will officially pronounce on this planning application and whether they agree or disagree with the officers to refuse it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they have the freedom. They have the freedom to um, approve if they if they're so minded because they're the elected representatives. It's um, it's their decision. Um, it's important enough to be decided on. Yeah. Uh, so uh, th- that it's up to them to make that decision. And where did um, you say the meeting was and when? So it'll be at um, the Wokingborough Council offices in Shoot End, Wokingham, um, and the meeting will take place at seven pm this Wednesday. And is it only a live meeting or can people join in online? 
um people yeah yeah they they like they live stream the meetings uh working okay. council and battle forest council both the councils i do cover mm. are very good uh with uh, live streaming there'll be a youtube live stream so um if well i think the majority of people will probably um hop onto that live stream to yeah. uh, see what the decision will be i believe it should be quite soon after the start yeah. it's after, always uh, more fun though if you attend the meetings it's great to hear the crowd booing and hissing in the background isn't it <laughs> There have been occasions, well, um, certainly when I, in my previous job as a reporter um, in Reading, there were there were times when there was jeering and booze and, and that sort of thing, uh, particularly regarding a plan for the East Reading Mass Rapid Transit. Yep. Um, and that was quite a, quite an un- unpopular uh, yep. plan that was afforded by the council itself, actually, but people... Yeah. We're not keen on that um and there were there was jeering um and there were there were words said uh but um yep. yeah luckily it didn't escalate uh, to more than that but uh but yeah uh, sometimes almost like can sting be a eh? strong words in the classroom you know so let me just ask a question i have to ask this question um so that one where there was a lot of public participation in the background an official and their voices were heard did the public get what they want Yes, uh, East Reading Mass Rapid Transit, what happened with that is there was a plan to build a bus and cycle and walking route um, along the, uh, I think it was, yeah, yeah, along the River Thames, um, linking East Reading to the Reading Town Centre. Reading Borough Council's planning committee approved the plan. But Woking Borough Council's uh, committee rejected it. Um, And because it dipped into Woking Borough, uh, and it involved a bridge over the um, the Kennet mouth uh, to actually work. Um, then it fell through because okay. they they can they you can't build a bridge uh, to a um, borough council area which which refused the thing. It would just, it would just stop in the middle. Okay, uh, so that was a case where a borough boundary stopped the plans. Wow. Okay. Interesting. J- James, thank you for joining us. And next week you'll be back again to talk about, um, well, what will we be talking about next week? Another contentious story. Well, the working local plan update, which is um, the biggest news that I think has come out of uh, working borough uh, so far, because it, it sets the agenda for um, house building and development uh, for the next um 15 years mm. in Wokey and Borough so there's a, there's a lot to get into there um, but but and it's a very important very important issue Absolutely and really interesting for me there's a connection with um, Swallows Meadow and of course um, Reading University in all of these situations Reading University is obviously a key landowner and also one of the key potential experts in, in the world in relation to environment, climate change, biodiversity hopefully we get a comment from um, the University of Reading in relation to their involvement or their com- or their um, participation in the, in the local plan? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're supportive of one particular plan to build a 4,500 home new community in the Loddon Valley. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to get their, their impression on, on whether that will be that's a sustainable development or not. I think that that'd be important to uh, seek their advice on and see, see what they say. Okay. James, thank you so much for joining us. Next week, we'll have James Aldridge and James Bagley. We'll have a double team. I'm going to say, if you want to listen to this episode again, you can download it on the podcast from Apple, Google, Deezer, or listen again. And I'm going to leave you just one final comment. Remember, people, if you don't, who will? Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Woo!